Hey, um, we're going to get it up in the book of Joshua, Joshua chapter 3 in just a second. I want to tell you a story, and it kind of ties into where we're at as a church. Next week, we're going to celebrate 12 years of God's faithful work in and through Four Points Church. A dozen of you are, are excited. The rest of you are wondering if there's a catch. Uh, it means you might have to come to church two weeks in a row. That may be the catch. It's a big Sunday. Um, no, we uh, are going to celebrate God's faithfulness and work uh, to and through the church. We're also going to be, for those that call this church their home, uh, making a pledge to give financially, sacrificially, uh, above our current giving so that we could have the down payment to break ground next door and build our first semi-permanent this side of eternity facility. Again, about a dozen of you are excited about that. Uh, we're glad the rest of you are here. Um, my... My point in bringing that up is when I was seven years old, uh, we uh, grew up in a Methodist church, Augusta Road United Methodist Church, South Greenville. Uh, didn't have much in Old Moonville back in the day. Uh, we got a Burger King when I was about six, and that was a big deal because now there was an out-to-eat option that you didn't have to drive to Malden for, and so it was a, it was a really big deal. And uh, it was close enough to the church that on Sunday night youth meetings, if we were really good, they would walk us down the dead-end road to the Burger King, and we would get a 67-cent cheeseburger and a french fry, and we would discuss the matters of the Lord together, which for some reason, seasoned with Burger King salt, were better. <laughs> it was a big deal. Uh, but our little church uh, was on a back road that had no traffic, and so no one knew we were there, and you didn't have Google, and you couldn't like Google a church to figure out where you were going to go, so everything was really dependent on word of mouth. And so with conviction, uh, this congregation of about 85 to 90 people uh, believed that the Lord wanted us to move to a more visible location for our community. We were for our city. We wanted to be a representative of God's kingdom to our city, and we were finding it very difficult to do it on a dead-end road. And so uh, they, in faith, stepped out and gave and bought land. And then they put up a sign that said, Future Home of Augusta Road United Methodist Church. I was seven years old, and that sign rotted for years in that field. And we would drive by it day in and day out as it just stood there, future home, future home, future home. And finally one day I looked at my father, who was the music minister, still is to this day, of that little Methodist church. And I said, can we just take the sign down? And he was like, why, son? I was like, because I don't think we're really going to do it. We've been talking about this forever, and, and we just aren't doing it. And my dad in that moment kind of heard that and thought about it, and we didn't say much. But about a year later, the church that we were at, the property sold, and we went portable for a year and a half into a middle school as we were prayerfully waiting the ability to raise the funds so that we could build the building to create the space for the next generation to be trained and equipped and for the community to hear the gospel so that they could be sent to the nations on God's great commission. And so after a year and a half, uh, the middle school we were in was three-quarters of a mile from the new church, and our pastor at the time decided it would be a great idea for us to march from the place that we had been meeting into the promise that God had given us that we now visibly could see into the church that we were going to do church in as a community for the years to come. So we marched from that middle school with police escort up the old Woodmont High School road, around the middle school, up by the high school, took a right on Highway 25 and walked straight down to the property where God was going to allow us. And in junior high, I got to experience my parents fast, pray, 
and sacrifice so that what was not visible became something that I visibly could see as we walked into a building where our family, for a short time, had decided to sacrifice our lifestyle so that we could create a space for the next generation to reach. I had no clue what God was about to do in the space that they made because it was in that space where I first heard the voice of God when he tapped on my heart and said, Son, I've chosen you to be a messenger of my gospel. I preached my first sermon in that space. I taught Sunday school for the first time in that space. I learned about the gospel of Jesus Christ, about people that had gone before us and been faithful like John Wesley in that space. You see, a generation made some space, and what wasn't a reality became visible for me to see, and it was in that space where God met with me and changed my life. I can't imagine what would have happened if the sign would have just continued to rot in that field because no one was willing to do anything about it. And next week, I'm asking you, not for you and not for your comfort, but for the generation that's going to come after us to do something that many will see as irrational, that many will dismiss as just another church trying to get money from people. And I'm asking you to create some space because there's another generation coming up behind us and it's within that space that we're going to get the opportunity to teach and allow them to see and experience the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now before we get to that week, I want to tell you a story in the book of Joshua. In Joshua chapter 3, two weeks ago, we looked at a story of 12 spies. Joshua was one of those 12. After God had broken the people who were not a people who had no inheritance free from Egypt and slavery, he then parted waters. They walked through on dry land. And then the army of Pharaoh that was pursuing came behind them and was crushed and wiped out. The people of God delivered from their captivity, delivered from their slave masters. And as a result of that, they were given a promise that God was going to bless them to be a blessing. That they would be blessed by God to live differently. This is something that we have to remember as followers of God. It's not just as followers of God we get to be blessed, but we've been blessed so that the world would be blessed. We've been given the presence of God and the power of God so that the world would see the power of God and be invited into his presence, not dismissed from his presence. You see, the point was that we would be distinct and marked by the presence of God so that we could be a blessing to the world around us. And so they were going on a march that should have taken two weeks that would have ended with them going into the land that God was going to give them to be blessed, to be a blessing to the nations. But instead, the 12 spies went out and 10 came back with a negative report and ruined it within the ears of the entire camp. We can't do this. This isn't the right time. The economy's bad. We'll, like, we'll probably be ruined over it. What if we make a commitment that we can't fulfill? What if we get in over our heads? They expected a move of God without needing to depend on God, which is the biggest problem that many of us are in. We want to see a big God move, but we don't want to be in a big God moving space. We want God to move big, but we don't want the pain and the loneliness and the difficulty and the doubts that often accompany the space which God in a big way fills. Shouldn't be shocked at the fact that if you're a follower of Jesus, your life should not register and make sense apart from the explanation of God's at work in this place. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a famous theologian, pastor, martyr, spy, <laughs> in 38 years of living, who was killed during World War II, was quoted as saying, if your life makes sense as a follower of Jesus to the non-believing world, you're not doing it right. Like if they look at you and they go, ah, oh, he fits in. 
that should raise the hairs on your arm to go, maybe I'm not doing it right. And I mean that within the context of a southern culture that goes to church even if you don't believe it, follow it, or adhere to it. People should look at that and go, man, that, that's, that's like a light in a dark room. That's like salt in a difficult place that needs to be preserved. Like, like, like that doesn't make sense. And it's not human goodness that's there. Because, because religious folk in the room, let me be very clear. This is not, I never give a call to be better. No. Be dependent. Be desperate. Cling to Jesus. These are godly Christian calls. This be better, make something of yourself, that's man-made religion and it will not deliver, help, or save you. What, what we are trying to create is for you to understand the gap between you and God so that you cling to Jesus to do through you what you cannot in your own goodness do for yourself. Jesus didn't come because you could be good. He came because without him you were evil. Let me let that rest in your millennial pipes for you to smoke for a minute. Evil. Evil. Your heart was set against God. Your mind was set against God. You wanted nothing to do with God. You didn't desire God. The reason is the gospel. Is that God saw you in that state and still sends his son. To deliver you from the fact that you in your efforts will never be good enough. Will never get over the hump. You don't need more time. You don't need more degrees. You don't need more opportunities. You needed God to deliver you and save you from yourself. The problem's not the world and CNN watchers. The problem was you. It was you. So God came and stood in your place to deliver you. To deliver you from your biggest enemy. You. This is the good news. This is the gospel. So we have this opportunity to take a faith step that can be an example to the next generation next week. But what we have in the story of Joshua, the spy who believed that God could, but now has wondered for 40 years because the rest of Israel believed that he could not, is a story of God finishing what he desired to begin. And look at me, some of you have been here a long time. This is not a halfway false start again. We are going to finish what God began 12 years ago until the day the trumpet blows and Jesus comes back. It's time to finish. It's time to finish. Finish the work he's called us to. Let's finish getting the great commission done. Let's finish carrying the gospel to the nations. It's time. You want to know what time it is? The Bible says you should know the time and the seasons for which we're living. You know what time it is? It's time to finish. It's time to finish. Open up your Bibles to Joshua chapter 3. The title of this sermon is For Those Who Come Behind. For Those Who Come Behind. Joshua chapter 3. We'll pick it up in verse 9. It says this. So Joshua told the Israelites, come and listen to what the Lord your God says. Today, you will know. I love that word. I'll talk about it in a minute. That the living God is among you. 
He will surely drive out the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the, the Amorites, the Jebusites ahead of you. Anyone impressed that I made it through that? That's good for a southern boy. Look at the Ark of the Covenant, which belongs to the Lord of the whole, uh, of the whole earth. Will, it will lead you across the Jordan River. Now choose 12 men from among the tribes of Israel, one from each tribe, and the priests will carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth. As soon as their feet touches the water, the flow of the water will be cut off upstream and the river will stand up like a wall. Okay, here's what I love. For the majority of the people that are a part of the nation of Israel, which by this point in history, there's believed to be around three to three and a half million. So this is not a small community that's moving. We're moving the state of South Carolina. Like we're moving a lot of people, okay? Three plus million people. They now have heard, majority of them, because everybody else has died that was on the other side of the water in Egypt. They've heard that God parted the water. They've experienced the supernatural provision of God. But they've only heard the story of God delivering them through the water for the most part. Now the text says in verse 9, today you will, excuse me, verse 10, you will what? No. I'm concerned that for many of us, we intellectually know things that's not the no of verse 10. We intellectually know things that we've heard about God, that we've read about God, that others have told us about God, but we've not experienced it. And what I want you to know is we still serve a God who moves and works today, which means while it's important for you to know what God has done, it is also important for you to expect and believe that God will still do. And for some of you, you're good with the faith that just knows about what God has done, but is absent from the expectation that God is going to do. So you believe that you'll see the goodness of God in eternity, but you've forgotten the other side of what David said when he said, I believe I not only will see God move in eternity, but I will see him move in the land of the, I'm going to see him move now. I'm going to see him move here. You see, some of you have taken a couple of punches with life and, and drank the bitterness of this world. And as a result of it, you believe in an intellectual movement of God that isn't actually active today. It's just an, a mental ascent. This no is God saying today you will know with your eyes that God exists, that God is able, that God is powerful. Look at verse 10. You will know that the living God is among you. You'll know he's there. He will surely drive out the Canaanites. Now, the worry in the beginning, back in Genesis, whenever the spies went out in the land, was they came back and said, we cannot do this. It's too difficult for us. The error they made is they were operating on the basis of their ability and not God's ability, which is anti-Christian. You're, you're, you're not made to live life by your ability. You're made to wake up every single day, Luke 9, 23, take up your and follow Jesus. That means you die so that he can live. Paul says it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives. So at what point were you supposed to assess Monday on the basis of your ability? At what point were you supposed to look at life through the lens of what can I do and what do I believe to be a possibility? We're meant to walk in the wonder of God is going to and is at work intervening on our behalf for his glory, name, and renown. Like, like that's the normal Christian life. And this other stuff that basically comes to Sunday and says, hey, God, we, we know you're there. We know you exist. We're here. See us. Bless us. And then leaves his presence without depending upon it in the regular week. That's anti-Christian, and it's part of the problem in our community. half-hearted allegiance. Instead of taking up the new name, you take up the name Luke Warm. 
because you know intellectually what has yet to actually impact how you live practically. I had a pastor tell me one time, you only believe the parts of the Bible you actually do. I think he's right. A lot of you believe intellectually a lot of stuff that you don't do. It reminds me of my papa. He was a worm salesman in his retirement. And I would go down there on Saturday mornings and sit with him. And he would scoop out worms for people going to fish. And he would say stuff that wasn't in line with the man that I would see in church. And he would look at me and say, oh, don't, 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 don't do that. But what he was teaching me is if you want to fit in to society, you cannot stick out as being holy. And we like to trivialize that, but that example stuck with me into my teenage years. There's words that you let fly for society's sake, for community's sake, when you're on the good old boy's sake, that then you clean up to come into the presence of God. Because there's an area of life that's yours, and there's an area of space that's called God's. But the problem is, the text says that the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. So there's not a space that you walk into, whether you're standing by a pit of worms or you're standing in the most holy of holy of places where sacred commitments have been made for generations. It doesn't matter the geography. The presence of God is there nonetheless. But, but, but what ends up happening for a lot of us is we have a compartmentalized faith that begins to go, all right, holy spaces, my spaces, and then we begin to divide and conquer. The next generation sees the hypocrisy and follows in our foots steps. Perhaps you've experienced this. The text says that they're going to know that God exists, that God is working, where you've heard about the work of God, but then you experienced it. Can you think back to a time where what you heard became something you experienced, where what you heard about God became a reality you walked in? That's what's happening in the text in verse 10. Look at verse 11. It says, the Ark of the Covenant will go first. God will fight the battle for you. He's going to lead you into it. It's going to be by his ability, his power, not your own. If it's a move of God, it will require God just as a reminder. Get down to verse 14. It says, so the people left their camp and they crossed the Jordan. And the priests who were carrying the Ark of the Covenant went ahead of them. You tracking with me still? Three yeses. In the Jordan, uh, it was harvest season. That's one detail. There's no detail in the Bible by mistakes. So let's make note. It's harvest season, and the Jordan was overflowing its banks. So this wasn't a drought and a minor miracle. This was a major. The Bible wants you to know that the water's at its top point. It's not even being contained by the, the river's uh, edges. It's now overflowing the edges. So this is not a, like, well, it was a dry season, and it happened, and it was a miracle because we got there, and the water just wasn't running really fast there, and we were able to cross through on somewhat dry land. Because think about how many times we rewrite a miracle. We're asking God for a miracle in our life. We're asking God to move. He shows up in a miraculous way. By next Tuesday, we're doubting whether or not God's going to move anymore. And we're doubting whether or not he's good anymore. And it's all because we've forgotten a miracle that quick. So, so the details are important. It's harvest season. The water's overflowing the banks of the Jordan. But as soon as the feet of the priest who were carrying the Ark of the Presence of the Ark of the Covenant of God... We're carrying it, touched the river's edge. The waters above that point began backing up a great distance away to a town called Adam. Now, I'm a nerd that I read those details and I go, all right, I need to know the scope of what just happened. So, of course, I go and find historical maps of the city of Adam and where the nation of Israel is crossing. Now, three to three and a half million people. When I first read this miracle as a kid, I had another story in my mind. Anybody ever read the story of Noah who built the ark out of 
Barky, Barky, three people were blessed with that wormhole in your head when you were growing up. Okay, so, so I grew up thinking two by two. And so when I read this miracle, I'm thinking it's narrow. It's like, you know, an aisle that's made through. It's small. Well, if you take three million people through an, a space this small, it would back up eight. I wrote this down. Hang on. It would back up 800 miles. And it would take over a year to get everybody through. Now, the other detail is that the priests of the Lord are carrying the Ark of the Covenant, and they're standing in the middle of it while the waters are parted because it's the presence of God that's parting it. So I don't think they're going to stay for a year in the middle. It's going to get tiring. The, the text says it's a great distance away. So I wanted to look and, and began to figure it out. And so I began Googling doing math on how long it would take to get three to three and a half million people through something. At three miles, it would take a day. Okay, three miles, it will take a day, but the, it, it took less than a day. And the text gives us insight in the fact that it took less than a day. That it's backed up to the city named Adam. So then I go and find the city called Adam. Adam is 16 miles back from where they are. That's the distance of where we're at now to Bon Secours Wellness Arena downtown. Just to give you scope. This is not a minor miracle. This is what we call a major miracle miracle. God is flexing here. God is not moving in a subtle way. God is moving in a loud way, in a significant way. See, some of you right now, you're in a difficult season in life, and you're thinking to yourself, I don't need a small way. I need a 16-mile wide way. I got good news. I serve a God who can part water 16 miles away so that you can go through on dry ground. I serve a God. I serve a God who doesn't do minor miracles, but does major miracles. All three people are getting happy. I can feel the Spirit of God coming into this place right now. The waters are backed up. At 16 miles, it would have taken them a few hours, a few hours to get through. Look at what happens uh, in verse 17. As the waters backed up, the riverbed is dry. All the people crossed over near the town of Jericho. Meanwhile, the priests who were carrying the Ark of the Lord's Covenant stood on dry ground in the middle of the riverbed as the people passed by. They waited there until the whole nation of Israel had crossed the Jordan on dry ground. Chapter 4. When all the people had crossed the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Now choose 12 men, one from each tribe. All right, I want you to think about this. Uh, last night, the mighty Clemson Tigers fell to a hurricane. It was the biggest gift. Like, hey, y'all want some success? We don't like it anymore that I've ever seen. But today, if you were to say, okay, you're the tribe of Miami. You're the tribe of Clemson. You're the tribe of Carolina. Uh, whatever it may be, bless your heart. Uh, I, I want you to imagine that you're tasked to go get a rock that represents your tribe. Men in the room, answer me quickly. If you're representing your tribe with a rock, are you going small or are you going big? Right? Like if the tribe of Miami goes and gets a rock that he can barely scoop up, I'm like, well, okay. Rio, get over here. No. <laughs> We're going bigger. Right? So th this is not a minor monument that's being built. God is playing on the pride and rivalry that's within most men to build something that has to be seen. Tell each of those 12 men to take 12 stones, verse 3, from every place where the priests are standing in the middle of the Jordan. 
So go to the midpoint. Don't go to the bank. Don't get it on the side. Go, go to the deepest part of the water. Why? God is trying to make a point here. This needs to be a moment that becomes a core memory. This needs to be a moment that you refer back to. This is a moment that whenever you're tempted to think that God in the future is not faithful, is not able, is not capable, look at that monument and know those rocks came from the deepest part of the river so that you can be reminded when you're in deep waters that you serve the God that makes a 16-mile way. So Joshua called the 12 men, verse 4. They had chosen from the tribes of Israel. He told them, go into the middle of the Jordan in front of the ark of the Lord. Each of you must pick up one stone and carry it out on your shoulder. Twelve stones in all, one for each of the twelve tribes of Israel. We will use these stones to build a memorial. In the future, when your children ask the priest and the people at church, what do these stones mean to you? Y'all better catch me in my heresy. When they ask, when your children ask who? You, not the church, not their friend's house down the street. When they ask you, what do they mean to you? See, this is what your kids want. They don't want to know what Pastor Russ thinks about God. Macy is imparted with the blessing of having to know what Pastor Russ thinks about God. She's my daughter. But more than want to know anybody, she needs to know who do I Say the Lord is, who is he to me? So when they look at this monument and they ask, what does this mean to you? They're asking, not what have you heard, not what, what does someone else say, what's the synagogue's official press release on this? What does it mean to you? See, this is the joy and the honor of every generation. We are called to steward and tell the stories of what God has done and pass them down generation after generation after generation after generation. Your family outside of the Bible holds stories, many of you, of ways in which you were in impossible circumstances and God moved. Many of you heard those stories and now you curate and tell them to the next generation. Others of you walked in those stories and if you do not communicate them, the next generation will never know or hear of them. I want my kids to know that we come from a very broken family. That we come from poor people who got on a boat because we were criminals and came over to a country where we could steal and cheat and destroy other stuff. But God's grace intersected my great-great-granddad and he became a circuit-riding preacher. And he would preach four times a Sunday where he would ride via horseback to little Methodist churches up in North Carolina. And when we get done with one, he would end the day by getting on a train and driving that train up into the hills of nowhere in Appalachia to preach to six people in a little backwoods Methodist church in the middle of nowhere and he did it most of his grown life they need to know that we are a family that has a legacy of God intersecting in the mess and doing wonderful glorious and incredible things through it they don't need to just hear other people's stories but we have a family story of how God has moved on our behalf for some of you you are the beginning of that entire story you are the first generation the first people that God has used and called out from a series of brokenness and destruction. And he is using you as a strong link in your life to be a link that he builds generations on. And you get the opportunity to tell the story of how God's mercy intersected your life. You see, the next generation is not looking for what it means to somebody else. They're looking for what it means to you. What you've seen God, who you believe God to be, it 
matters. It makes a difference. Look at verse 8. It says this. So after they stacked it up and they ask you, what do these stones mean to you? You will tell them, verse 7, you will tell them uh, of the Jordan River being stopped flowing. And when the ark of the Lord's covenant went across, these stones will stand as a memorial among the people of Israel forever. So the men did as Joshua had commanded them. They took the stones from the middle of the Jordan River, one for each tribe, just as the Lord had commanded Joshua. They carried them to the place where they camped that night, constructed the memorial there. Joshua, this is an important detail, verse 9 set up another pile of stones in the middle of the Jordan at the place where the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant were standing. So think about what was there for generations to come. On the bank where you cross, there's a massive memorial, 12 stones stacked high to remind you God did this. We are where we are today. We are who we are today because God did this. And in case you think God is small, look in the middle of the river because now 12 stones stacked high in its deepest point. You can see that stone sticking out of the water barely to remind you that God does big things. So an entire generation goes in and takes the land that God has promised them. They settle in. They get comfortable. Life is good. They are blessed and as a result, they begin to wander. Judges chapter 2 picks up what happens when Joshua's generation dies and the next generation comes. I'll close with it. Judges chapter 2, verses 8 to 10. It says this. Joshua, the son of Nun, served the Lord and died at the age of 110. They buried him in the land he had been allocated at Timnath-Serah in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. After that generation died, another generation grew up who did not Most generations who raise a generation that doesn't acknowledge the Lord get mad at that generation because they're just spoiled. They're just too consumed with their self. They're always on social media. They're always on their phones. They don't care about spiritual things. They just aren't devoted followers of Jesus. And what we need to do is get back to the good old days, you know, a Bible and a belt, which neither one was really used in your house anyway in their upbringing, yet we wonder why they've drifted so far. See, this is the problem. Most of us look at the world and we go, oh, well, it's, it's that generation being so corrupt. No, no, no. They looked to you and they took your example further. They looked to you and they took your example further. They just turned the page to a new chapter of where you were already heading. An entire generation grew up who didn't know or acknowledge the Lord, or remember, remember who was tasked with telling. The generation before them. I know we want to be quiet because now it's personal. Because many of you have taught your kids football stats, but they know nothing about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Many of you have taught your kids how to idolize a football team, but they know nothing of worshiping the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And you've excused it because your father didn't either, because their father didn't either, as if that is a sufficient excuse for not leaning into the Lord to become the person that God has called you to be. In response, most of us do one of two things. We say stuff like, well, I just let my actions speak, not my words. That's stupid. Our faith is a proclamation-oriented faith. Our words are to be seasoned with the gospel, with with the announcement of the kingdom of God. 
So it's not enough to say my Sunday, weekend, ritualistic, religious acts of trying to make myself be good and not desperate in need of Jesus are enough. And, and, and they just see that. We go to church. My dad didn't take me. When you meet Jesus, your dad's example is no longer the pinnacle or the tragedy that you operate from. When you met Jesus, you received a heavenly father who was greater than your earthly father, no matter how great or bad he was. And you've now been called to walk in the face and the presence of the father. So it's no longer sufficient for you to go, well, my dad's delinquency has caused me to pass on more delinquency to the next generation. You have been redeemed and the curse has been broken so that you can now extend a godly legacy to the next generation. I'm sick of men. I'm sick of men who are aggressive about stupid, temporary things outside of this church, who are filled with excuses about why they're raising up an apathetic, lukewarm generation in this church. I'm sick of men who will open up all sorts of carnage and chaos that they will bend their knee to, all sorts of stupid tertiary ideologies that they will make a big deal so that they impress that upon the next generation. But do not walk out a gospel that is dependent upon Jesus and walks with the Spirit that can be transferred to them in their time of need of knowing that there's a God that is near and with them and able. You see, the next generation dad needs to hear God out of your mouth. They need to hear the word, not from the preacher's mouth, but from your mouth. They need to hear you speak scripture over them. They need to hear you open the word and read it to them. And I get it. No one's ever taught you how to do that, maybe. Or, or, or you're insecure about it. Or you just, you just don't know yourself. Well, you owe it to the next generation to figure this out. Because if God is real, then he's worth everything, and they need to see it in you. And if he's not, you should warn them and get them away. I believe with conviction he's real. Therefore, the words of Scripture should fill your mouth. I look at my kids and, and try to speak, and I'm, I'm telling you, I'm imperfect at this. I fell at this. I have fallen short as a father. I need the grace of God. I want you to hear that. I want you to know that. But God has patiently, in 11 years of her life, given me lots of grace and instruction on how to, when you get it wrong, get it right. And in his grace and power, how to get it right every now and then. Dads, your, your kids, they need to hear you repent. They need to see it. When you get it wrong, they need to hear you go, hey, I'm sorry I missed the mark. That's not in line with Christ, and I'm a follower of Jesus. And I want you to know that, that I missed the mark, but Jesus' grace is sufficient for me, and he's forgiven me. But I'm asking you, could you forgive me too, because dad missed it. That should be normal in a Christian house. They need to hear you repent. They need to hear you confess sin. They need to see you lean into Jesus in difficult seasons. So they need to hear it, but let me, let me be clear. They not only need to hear you pray, hear you read, hear, hear you ask for and receive forgiveness, but they need to see you pursue. You speak it, you pursue it. You speak it, you pursue it. Jesus is pursued because he is your treasure. And there's no other treasure that will rival him. And when treasures do rival our affection for Jesus, we, we repent, we turn, and 
and we confess, hey, that was wrong. Because here, here's the deal, dads in the room, you are the lead repenter of your house. It's not your wife's job to go first, it's your job. It's not your wife's job to pray first, it's your job. I get it doesn't fit our view of the world and every, and I get it, like look, moms, you, you, I'm, most of us, we have because of the absence of men who were cowards, grandmas who stood in their shoes. But that doesn't negate God's call. And I'm sick of sitting on my hands acting like I've got a baby and pamper you. They need to hear and they need to see Christ in you. Christ in you. So next week we've got an opportunity to do something practical for the next generation to see. You can stand on the side and cross your arms and watch, but God will move and in spite of you, we'll go there. Not to spite you, but in spite of you. You won't stop what God is doing. Your scare tactics being eaten up by the enemy where you go around and so seasons and uh, seeds of discord within the church and trying to argue with people. Isn't it convenient that everyone gets in a little upheaval around a move like this? Isn't it, con isn't it, isn't it convenient that it gets a little bit more difficult to be a faith family in a moment like this? It's almost as if there would be a strategy, a scheme to disunify a unified church so that we wouldn't be unified in a big moment where we need to take a faith step together. It's amazing to me. It's almost like there's an enemy. I think he might be on the prowl killing, stealing, and destroying. And maybe you need to wake up and know that sometimes your feelings are being manipulated by demonic stuff. And it's not just, it's not, it's not just, it's not just, well, well, we got here and we've been here long. No, 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 this is timed. This is timed. We're gonna go next door. And practically I'm excited because there's a day coming where I'm gonna hold her hand and she's gonna know the reason we didn't go to Chick-fil-A seven times a week the reason we said no to five bucks, the reason our vacations are whatever my mom and dad pay for over the next couple of years. Amen for grandparent paid vacations. Amen. The reason that's there, Macy, is because we want to create a space for you to meet Jesus, to grow in the community of Christ. I want to create a space for you because look, I believe, I believe that God's got an incredible plan for your life. And we want you to see the community of Christ at work. We're imperfect, Macy. There's gonna be times where they're gonna gossip about your dad. They're gonna make me mad. I'm gonna be checked out sometimes at home because of something somebody said on social media that I heard about. And I won't be engaged with you because I'm working through it, but I need you to know that Jesus is worth it and the community of Christ is worth it. And God's got a great plan for what he's gonna do. And we're gonna sacrifice, mom and I are, our finances over the next three years or as long as it takes until we go next door because God's gonna do something in your life, Macy. And I want it to be launched through the church and not in spite of it. We're going there. We're going there. And so I'm, I'm inviting you next week. I'm inviting you next week to come. Celebrate with us and watch what God does. When we, when we align the things that we believe with the actions that we actually keep and the words that we say. It's going to be an incredible day. If you need prayer, our prayer team's here. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to pray with you. If you're a single mom, 
our single parent, man, his grace is sufficient and you're not alone. You're not alone. God loves you. He's got a community of people that'll come around you. God, God, God is not gonna write off a generation because one of the parenting parties walked away. Like, like God's got a plan. Run to Jesus. Run into community. We'd love to pray and encourage you. Let's stand to our feet. Men, lead the way. Lead the way. Worship, pray, bend the knee. Let's go.